0: Welcome to Parenting with Pam, with me, your host, Pamela Query. I am a certified hand-in-hand parenting instructor, and I am here to help you keep your cool while still getting your kids to cooperate, so you can parent in a peaceful way and actually enjoy being a parent. That means no more endless negotiating, lecturing or explaining, no need for threats, bribes or consequences, no more daily yelling. So if you want to create a peaceful home, I'm here to show you how. Welcome, dear parents, to episode 47 of the Parenting with Pam podcast, where I am so deeply honoured um, to be having a conversation with Patty Whitfler. For those of you who don't know, Patty Whitfler is the founder of Hand in Hand Parenting. She uh, has been working with parents for 47 years uh, and over that time has developed the hand in hand parenting approach, the listening tools, and Hand-in-Hand Parenting as an organisation that now reaches around the world supporting parents. So in this conversation we talk about so many things. We talk about um, how Paddy's early childhood really had a huge influence on her life and who she became and her drive and her desire to make life better for children and for parents as well because she knew from a very early age the impact that that parental stress can have on a whole family system Um, and and that has really been her life's work to find ways to support parents and she's done this really at the very core of it as you will hear is really through listening listening to parents listening to children with a, a deep sense of of love and connection and respect and it just shows you how um how listening the the power of listening can really change the world that she's had such a huge impact around the world and continues to do so as the hand-in-hand parenting approach continues to grow uh, around the world so uh, I think you're in for such a treat with this conversation um just just listening to Paddy has such a calming effect on on my nervous system and I'm sure on you'll notice that too that um, you know she has just such deep compassion and deep wisdom to share with us. So um, I hope you enjoy today's episode. So welcome, welcome dear parents. Today I am so honoured to welcome to the show Paddy Whitler, founder of Hand in Hand Parenting. So welcome Patty. I am so delighted to be having this conversation with you
1: today. Um, thank you for being here. No thank you very much for inviting me. I'm honoured to be here and honoured to know to have a chance to you know help you in your project of making parenting more of a love delivery activity than it sometimes is under under all the stress that parents are under. So it, you, you yes. do such good work here. I'm so happy to support it.
0: Oh thank you so much Patty. Um, so Patty you've been working with families, with children, with parents Um, for 47 years now I know it's even longer than that because you worked with with uh, children even before you started working with parents and and I know through your work you're profoundly aware of the impact that our childhoods have on who we become so I'm wondering if we could start there could you tell me what it was like what was it like for you growing up um, and how that really shaped you and
1: influenced your life sure um i'm seventy six the story is so, it, it's it's way back in the nineteen forties when I was born and I'm the oldest of six children. my mom had three children in four years um so she was working hard as a mom and um my brother is just a year and a half younger than I am and then my sister my sister was born when I was four and um I really fell in love with her. My mom had very carefully prepared me to be very consciously prepared me to be a, a good big sister. She read me these little books, which I, I still remember vividly about how to be a big sister and what was going to happen when the baby was born and she also showed me how to fold baby clothes and how to fold diapers and how to put them in the little place where we kept the baby clothes so that i could be her helper in ways that made me feel like i was you know contributing and i i i wanted to do these things and then i held her when she came home from the hospital and and i was just i remember being really flooded with love and wonder it was really her name was Marianne, and um, unusually, um, she was a fine baby, normal, you know, perfectly normal, really lovely little girl. And, but by the time she was seven months old, she had just begun sitting up, and then she lost that ability, and and then she lost more abilities. After a little while, she lost the ability to roll over, and she. Lost the ability to suck on a bottle. We were bottle-fed, not nursed, and um, it took a long time to feed her because she just couldn't concentrate on sucking for very long. And my mom started taking her to the doctors, and and there was no un, there was no understanding and no diagnosis for what happened to her. But over the period of about six months or eight months, she lost everything. She still, my mom thought she still could recognize her, but she couldn't roll over. She just kind of lay there peacefully. Every once in a while, she'd sort of make little noises, but she was very hard to feed because she had no coordination. And she became what the, the terminology in those days was profoundly mentally retarded. There was really not very much going on in her brain. And nobody knew why. nobody knew what to do about it. She had not been shaken. She had not you know was not an, there was no accident involved. And um, so our family really started baking in parental stress. My dad was having to pay for all of these doctor visits, and my mom was began spending about six hours a day exercising her limbs, her arms and her legs and rolling her this way, and rolling her that way, trying to figure, trying to support the brain-body connection which clearly was got pretty much gone. And um, none of that had any effect whatsoever except to keep her in pretty, pretty good shape. Um, it, but it didn't change what was going on, so... Um, And meanwhile, my brother and I were becoming neglected, not intentionally, but my mom was really focused on saving her baby, and um, then my brother began acting out, and then my dad began mistreating him, and the mistreatment got worse and worse, and the more my dad mistreated him, the more he acted out, and so our family, the stresses in our family, just mushroom. And um, finally, when I was about one and a half, my, my sister had three grand mal seizures in one day. It was the first seizure she'd ever had, but it was followed by two more that same day. And they lasted almost an hour each. And my mom didn't know what to do. I don't, I don't recall us having any help I think we might have had help that I wasn't aware of but we, we didn't have anybody helping her no one was cooking meals no one was coming over to take care of us that there was nothing like that it was really mom holding all of this on her own shoulders and um, after the day that those seizures happened um, I, I don't have a conscious memory but i know that my mom just my dad came home from work opened the door and she just collapsed in his arms and started crying really really hard and saying i just can't do this anymore and the doctors had been encouraging her to institutionalize my sister for about three months and she was refusing 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 so our family was full of stress my whole fourth year and fifth year. They, a couple of days after my mom collapsed, um, both emotionally and physically, a social worker came and took my sister away to the hospital, first of all, and then to group care. And then she was transferred to a a major hospital for children with developmental disabilities um, and other disabilities that that made their families either ashamed of them or unable to take care of them. And in those days, if you had a child with a developmental disability, you took you tended not to take your child out. you tended not you tended to be ashamed of them, you tended to feel like there was something wrong that you had done. It was the oppression around that was very, very, very heavy um, so and my brother's life went went badly. My father didn't stop mistreating him the you know the the way their relationship formed congealed, and it just stayed really, really antagonistic and um so my brother started smoking before he was 13. Um, he started drinking fairly early. He did not do well in school. School had started off badly for him because it had started. you know, nursery school had started under all the stress of my mom sending us to preschool before he was ready, and he would cry all the way there and cry all the way home. It was really so. I saw a lot about what parent stress can do. And our family was, then the cascade of stress just kept going. It's just my mom's back started hurting and that got disabling. And um, she had two more children and got more and more disabled the more children she had. And um, at one point, she well then she got pregnant with the the month that Marianne died when she was nine and I was thirteen. My mom got pregnant with her sixth child and um. And she couldn't carry that child. Her back was so fragile and she was in so much pain. So she was wound up being in bed through the last part of that pregnancy and then, being really unable to walk for another. She had an operation and then she was unable to walk for a whole year and year and some months after that. So we had to give my baby brother away. So not only had my sister, you know, not been able to taken care of, but we couldn't take care of my baby brother either. She went, he went to be with my aunt. So the cascade of difficulties just kept on going all the way through for about 15 years. and um, but the bright spot in the middle of it all. And I wound up starting cooking for the family when I was nine. By the time I was 13, when my mom was in bed, I was doing all the cooking, all the childcare after three in the afternoon after school. I was was really carrying a lot. Um, But my brothers and my sister, my little sister and my little brothers were really the light of my life. They were the my parents were not fun people <laughs> during that time. <laughs> My mom actually, especially is a very spirited woman, and she loves life, and she you know knew how to have a good time, but um, she was totally decked for about ten years altogether, really. And um, so the kids were fun. and I loved to play. And I wound up babysitting for the family down the street that had five boys, and I wound up—I don't know—you know—I I wound up doing a lot with children and loving it, and figuring I—I'm so good with kids and I'd love to be with kids, so I'm gonna build a life with kids. I'm gonna be a teacher, and um, so I set out to with that in mind, and but. But also, this whole experience had made me I had missed my sister every single day of my childhood every single day. I thought about her and I prayed for her and um, I, I wanted a miracle for her so that she could actually have a life and prayed for that and um, so i I don't know that some desire to make world a better place, some desire to make life for children a better life was very, very strong in me um, from all all the way through grade school, really. And um, so I I married very early Um, I I married a man who also wanted to change the world. and we started teaching in a very poor area of Los Angeles. This was during this was the late 60s, and the United States was in turmoil. Um, Kennedy had been assassinated, and John and Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. We were going to go in the Peace Corps, and when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated right in Los Angeles, where we were studying, we looked at each other and thought, you know, why are we going to the Philippines with the Peace Corps? you this country is really in need of change let's let's try to find a way to learn how to make a difference in the world here and we both just, we decided to teach in um, the most the, the deeply po- poor and isolated hispanic community and which was a lar- it's a very large area of los angeles so we taught in the schools that serve the poorest children in East Los Angeles and moved moved to live right next door to this my husband the school that my husband was teaching in and just a mile from the school where I was teaching um, and we did a lot of community organizing um, We opened an after-school center three days a week in our apartment, which was right next to a housing project. So we had like sometimes as many as thirty kids in our little one-bedroom apartment, you know, enjoying whatever supplies we could scrounge from our relatives and friends. And um, I mean, we just—it's like we we worked with a teen club on the weekends. Um, We. We just wanted to figure out how you organize and how you change the world and just did what we could think of doing. But he was resisting the draft. It looked at that time like he was probably gonna have to go to jail because he burned his draft card, which he really I mean, I really supported that. It's like the Vietnam War was not a just war, if there is such a thing as a just war. And um we we couldn't find a community of people who were, who, who could be our community if he had to go to jail. We didn't really have a, uh, that kind of community around us. So we moved to um, Northern California where Joan Baez and a guy named Ira Sanpearl had started the Institute for the Study of Nonviolence And they were an activist, a socially activist, politically activist group, you know, against the war and for social justice. And they were also um, a sort of a hub of draft resistance. There were several young men right there, local, who were either going to go to jail for being draft resistors, or who had been in jail or were in jail. And we're being supported or were out of jail having done their time. And we went there because we thought that that's really, you know, we, we didn't want to be all isolated if that was going to be our experience. And um, so we got in touch with people who are doing all kinds of who are creating community around social change and around um, trying to invent. New ways of of being with one another, new ways of banking, new ways of you know, creating land trusts. I don't know. There, there was lots of kind of and, you know cutting edge thinking about social issues going on there. It was very exciting, a very warm, loving dedicated group that we, we found ourselves in there. And we decided what we wanted to do there was not quite what they were doing. We, we, we just signed on to Cesar Chavez's um, movement to support farm workers who were the poorest and the really the most oppressed workers in all of California. Um, They weren't the only, I think Chinese had been before them, The Chinese people building the railroads were horribly oppressed and very, very poorly treated before them. But after the Chinese, it was the farm workers working on the, you know, harvesting crops and that, that really had the very worst conditions. And so we worked on that the effort to unionize farm workers and that meant um, doing boycotts of grapes in particular at first. And it was an inspiring movement. Cesar Chavez was a, a, a leader who, when he did farm worker meetings down in the Valley, Farm workers would get together and he would, they, would, they would listen to each and every farm worker who came to these meetings. And these were men who had never, ever spoken their mind in front of any group of people. You know? but, and the, the power of listening was obvious there. And it was very consciously and, and um, the, sort of the policy was, if you wanted to talk, we all will listen. And we will not stop you until you are ready to be, to to stop talking and so those farm worker meetings went on until like one and one thirty in the morning. It was very I um, don't you know the the power and the caring that came from those meetings was really really impressive. Um, so we stuck with that work for about three years and then I had child. I began having children and I thought oh. You know, I'm going to be really, really good at this. You know, I know all about kids. I like kids. I have a feel for kids. It's what I've always wanted to do: is be with children and have children. And and you know, my with my first son, things went swimmingly well. Um, and then I had a second son, and within about six months, I was I was a I was an angry, violent wreck. <laughs> my older my two-year-old would you know stand at the other end of the living room and throw throw a tennis ball at the baby while he was nursing and the ball would hit the baby right in the head it's like he had such good aim and that would absolutely infuriate me and I all of a sudden began showing some of the violent tendencies that our father had shown to my brother that had been modeled modeled in our family, that I had vowed I would absolutely never do, and I was like, "What is going on?" You know. I, 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 I and Patty, did you have any insight at that point?
0: Because um, I know for me, I had very little insight into how my I became a parent, how my childhood was influencing how I was as a parent. Did you have any sort of sense of your background and how that was showing up in your parenting?
1: Really, the f- the first sense of that was um, when I just had this. First of all, I I didn't know what to do with myself. I would promise myself I wouldn't get mad. I promised myself I wouldn't, you know, lose my lose my head. Um, but one day I found myself grabbing my son's arm and like the impulse to slam him into the wall was very, very strong. And I let go of his arm just in time to not do him harm. But I just thought, this is really bad. And I didn't, and I thought, who can I talk to? And I thought there's nobody I can tell about this. But my husband and I went to a a little meeting of people who were doing social justice work and raising children because somehow someone got the idea that that must be a pretty stressful situation <laughs> if you're trying to <laughs> do 24 hour a day social justice work and have kids. Um, and one woman who was there who didn't have children, you know, she, she invited me for a walk and my husband took care of the kids and we went off walking and I I'd never met her before in my life. And she just turned to me and said, what's it like to be a mother? And I just looked at her, and I just began crying so hard. And I, I was, I'm not a crier. I've never really been a crier. I, I don't cry easily, or didn't then. And um, what came out of my mouth was thoughts that I hadn't really consciously had, which is, my, it feels like my father is inhabiting me, and my father is taking me over. And all of the harshness that he had, I now have, and I don't want it, and I don't know how to get rid of it. And I just sobbed so hard. And that was the first inkling I had that you know there was some, you know, there was there was some connection there. And I cried uncontrollably for about 15 minutes, which is I nothing like that had ever happened to me, and except so it was just one time while my mom was really sick and had been sick for a long time. And I had waked up dreaming in the middle of the night. And I was crying and walking back and forth and dreaming at the same time. And it was and I was sobbing then. But you know, totally rare. And after that 15 minutes, I kind of pulled myself together and apologized and was embarrassed. And she just, she had really just listened. And then she just looked at me straight in the eye and she said, you know. I thank you so much for sharing that with me. I really respect you. And I feel like I know better what it's like to be a mom. Thank you. No advice. No, there, there, there. No, gee, you should see a counselor. No, oh, I'm really worried about you. Are you going to hurt your children? You know, should we call Child Protective Services? You know, it could have gone any one of those ways very easily. And it didn't. And I went back to my kids, and all of a sudden, I was good. I was myself again. I had patience. You know, I wasn't, you know, ready to hurt somebody, you know, at the drop of a hat. And um, I went back to her the next day and I said, "I, I don't know what happened yesterday, but what did you do? Because <laughs> whatever it is, that that's what I need as a mom. That's what I need. And she just explained to me, well, you know, I, I've learned how to listen with this peer counseling group. And the idea is that people naturally know how to let go of tension and they do it through crying and tantrums and laughter and 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 but but only when someone will really listen. And so we just learn to listen to one another. And then that just comes naturally sooner or later. And people's lives get better and they can think better. And they can they can be more intentional. And that was really the whole nugget of the idea. So I did not have this idea of the listening practice all by myself. I benefited from it. I needed it. And I jumped into a class and started my first listening partner was a dad whose wife had left him just the week before we met for the first class. He wouldn't have been in that class had she not left him telling him, I am never coming back. And he, she left him with a six-month-old daughter who had Down syndrome. And I don't know what her issues were, but she was out of there and promised she would never come back. And he was an engineer who didn't know anything about babies, had no experience with children, felt totally like a fish out of water as a father, who now was solely responsible for his daughter who who needed special care. He didn't know anything about services. He didn't know how he was gonna take care of her. He was in a world of hurt and um, we started listening to one another an hour each way a week with this idea that you listen and you care and you do not interrupt and you do not advise and you you do not give suggestions and you do not not break in with your own story. And um, I, I felt, immediately sort of akin to him because my sister had had a developmental delay and his daughter had a developmental delay and I'd been around young people with developmental delays before and I cared about that issue so and our lives got better as we listened to one another within three weeks I remember the first sign that this is really a good thing for me was first of all I felt Really, it was so interesting to be listened to for a whole hour and then to be able to talk about whatever came to my mind. And it was so interesting to listen to him because he was just paralyzed with fear in this situation. And all he did for the whole first hour was tremble like you've never seen anybody tremble. He trembled so, so actively that his teeth were rattling in his in his head. It was just rattle, 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 rattle. And he was looking really scared and just his whole body was vibrating for a whole hour. And they had said, well, if somebody trembles, you probably won't see this, but if somebody trembles, that's fear rolling off and they are getting rid of tension and they're going to be better for it. And so I thought, well, I guess I'm doing okay here as a listener because look what's happening. (laughs) And so I was like, well, all right, I think we're doing it. <laughs> Meanwhile, I didn't cry for the next nine months. I did a whole lot of laughing, but you know, I couldn't find any way to cry after that one big, you know, sort of revelatory cry. But he was a very good listener and we really formed a very strong alliance. And um, his life got better. He figured out, you know, slowly but surely figured out how he was gonna care for his daughter. My kids began sleeping through the night. I began being more relaxed around them. And I found the whole process riveting, fascinating. It's like you can learn so much by listening to somebody for a whole hour and watching everything that they do and trying to get every signal that they give nonverbally about themselves and about their story. So it it was. I'd never learned in this way before exactly. And it was the most powerful kind of learning that I've ever encountered. And the more I did it, the more I wanted to do. And um, uh, there were several mothers of young children who were in taking these classes. There were a few classes being given where I lived. and. And we kind of found each other and started getting together. And the most experienced listener kind of came and listened to, well, what should we do with this and what should we do about that? And we had all these questions about how do you raise a child so they don't have such a such a heavy pack of feelings, you know, by the time they're an adult, and um, and how do we solve all these little. You know two kids wanting you know the same the same green truck you know and fighting over it like i don't know just all of these very practical things you know i gave my my son the red cup and he wailed for the blue cup you know which is exactly the same as the red cup you know what am i supposed to do like do i switch cups why is he wailing what what is it about the cups all of a sudden you know just. We had no understanding of anything, and um, he was making guesses, and we would go back and sort of, you know, think about it, and bring more problems, and share what we had figured out to do, and we were looking for preschools for our kids, and we started trying to look for a preschool that wouldn't wouldn't discourage children from crying, because we were finding that having our own good cries was really, really helpful to us, just helps clear out the cobwebs and clear out the gunk and you feel you know you just are able to relax um, if you can let go of emotional tension like that and even if you can't which i hadn't been able to for a whole long time you still are really looking at your life and looking at your interactions and noticing where feelings interfere from you being the way you want to be or you being the way you promised yourself you would be. Um, So there were all kinds of things about it that I was really, really still very curious about and didn't know. And um, we tried to find a preschool that would be supportive of children's tendency to want to laugh and laugh and laugh and tendency to want to have big cries. And we couldn't find any place. And finally we decided to start our own little school. And that's where we learned the hand in hand parenting approach. It's like, oops, let's... we started our own little school. We started it in my home, um, Me and a co-director were, you know, it was just seven parents, seven moms, Um, and we just allowed one child from each family to come. It was a part-time school, and we tried to set it up so that there was a ratio of one adult for every two children at all times, so that we could really pay full attention to any, any, to everything that happened. Really, that children had plenty of grown-ups around to support them and, and we could talk about and discuss interesting interactions and what was going on and really try to figure out how do you use the power of listening with you know a three-year-old a four-year-old with sibling difficulties and with sleep difficulties and with um, you know, a child wanting to hang on to their their comfort item all day long every day, not not being able to use their right hand for anything else you know um, just all kinds of things. And we had a child in there who was prone to um, very serious asthma attacks. She actually almost died the second year of our school um, she was she was very close to death um, from an asthma attack and how do you? How do you help a child who's been through a near-death experience? And how do you support them while they're in the hospitals, you know, so that they have the best chance of living? And so all these questions from the very biggest kinds of things to, you know, how much you know when do you set limits and how do you do it? And and but maybe the biggest question of all is how do you, how do you handle the urgency and the anger and the you know the bias you know you know that comes up when somebody else's child smacks your child in the face. You know what do you say to that parent? How do you handle your own you know mama bear or papa bear reactions? So we, we that school went for five years as a preschool. And of course, the children grew, so we added more children. Then we were kind of a homeschool, first and second grade. And then we became an after-school program. And we kept on with the same families, with additional families rolling in for, I think, 10 years. And But after the first five years, we actually knew most of what's in our little booklets, the Listening to Children booklets. and we all just kind of dug it out of our own experience and dug it out, working on our own feelings the whole way along, supporting one another and um, really getting to know one another very deeply. And um, so there was lots of emotional support, you know, lots of support to think and and our policy was, if you had an interesting interaction at home or at school, you brought it. You brought it to the parent group, and we would all learn from it. So it was community learning built in from the very first. So it wasn't just me, but I was the one who who wrote it. Um, I, I had good writing skills. I'd always been a good writer and always loved writing and. So in a way, what I contributed was some of the language, and um, and just I don't know whatever persistence it took to actually think it through clearly enough to write it down and begin to name hmm. it. Begin, and then teaching it was kind of in a way the the most sophisticated skill because we needed to create overviews. You know, like the importance of connection. You know, is so that's an overview um idea just that children need to be with people who can connect with them, who are relaxed enough to connect. And when we lose our relaxation and get urgent or scared or preoccupied or stressed, that's when children's behavior goes off track. You know, they're off track when you get to the grocery store because for the half hour before you were finding your keys, making your list, checking on how much milk you need, feeding the cat because you forgot, you no, know, then cleaning up the cat. You no, know, the cat throws up on the carpet. So then you have to clean that up. And you have to get everybody's shoes on, you have to get out in the car or on the bus. By the time you're at the grocery store, you are not connected. Your children are have been disconnected. And so they have a huge cry in the middle of the, you know, the aisle of the, the cereal aisle in the grocery store because you won't get this kind of flakes that you they want that kind of flakes. And and it's just because they they can't think anymore and they know better than to carry carry themselves along in that state for very long. They, they want to cry it through and get it get it over with. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, thank you, Patty, for sharing just so much there about um your journey and about um, the the very the very roots and the 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 first shoots of hand-in-hand parenting. Um and I guess yeah with, with in my own parenting, I guess I had a, a similar situation to you as in um when my daughter was born, everything was okay. And then when my um when my when my second child came along she was four years old and I started to really, really struggle. And I I think intuitively I wasn't willing to use like that kind of control or fear to um to uh to control her behavior or to make her behave in a certain way. But then I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what the alternative was. And the alternative for me was very much just like trying to accommodate her no matter what she did um and uh, so then I, you know I became very permissive in my parenting and um I, yeah I didn't know I didn't know what the alternative was so the alternative so that's what I find in hand in hand was this alternative view to that is that we can focus on connection and we can focus on a uh, relationship and whenever we do that then the whole dynamic changes and I suppose um, there is this. I think there is this misconception in the world of parenting and gentle parenting that the you know the opposite of of control and harsh and strict parenting is um, being permissive. So, that, what, what what are your views on on that? What have you
1: find with that? Well, um, a- a- every Every child goes off track at some point almost every day you know their behavior goes from cooperative and flexible and inclusive of others and joyful to you know tight and exclusive and wary of others or 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 demanding you know really urgent urgent need for the red cup, not the blue cup. You know, urgent need for five cookies, not one cookie, and um, and and it just that that's a manifestation of feelings having taken over their system, rather than flexible thinking and connection with other people. And and it's a it is just the biggest favor to a child to not allow this the tension that they're under to ruin their judgment you know to to um not not to go with this off-track behavior so that yes they have five cookies and then they're not satisfied with the drink that you gave them and they don't want the orange juice they want the milk but you give them the milk and then they cry because it's spilled and they won't drink it you know or i mean just the that, that appeasing a child who is off track just leads to bigger and bigger off-track behavior, less and less satisfaction with what you did. And um, so rather than getting taken down that path until you absolutely blow up with them, um, which isn't good for them or you either, um, it's really, we, we feel like it's just a good idea to set limits early and often you know as soon as you see a whiff of off-track behavior that's the time to set a little limit and if if a big emotional explosion happens that's exactly what needed to happen because the bad feelings that drove that behavior are are flowing out and if you can pour connection in then that fills the be- that young person's need for reassurance and safety and love because because you can reassure a child and talk to them rationally and be really good with them even when they are off track but they don't absorb it you know there's all these bad feelings in there that block you know, the entry of the love and the care and the thoughtfulness that you are pouring in. So in a way, it's really useful to a child to say, I can't let you do that, sweetie. And there doesn't have to be any harshness with it, better if there isn't. Um, But, you know, even if you can't do it perfectly, a limit is better than no limit, because it gives them the pretext, it gives them the kernel of something that they can really latch onto as the reason to have a good cry or a good tantrum. And you see really um, what feels almost like almost miraculous behavioral change when you listen all the way through an emotional episode. Um, And for some children who have been through substantial adversity of some kind, you know, some kind of of an illness, some kind of a surgical procedure, some kind of a difficult kind of, you know, the loss of a family member or a great big move from one place to another in which the parents were frantic, you know, for two weeks. Um, All those things can really drive a child off into a feeling very alone, very embattled, and very upset about lots of little tiny things. Um, and, and so but children can recover from almost any kind of adversity, no matter how deep or how early. And, but in order to, for them to have something good to bang up against so that those feelings can come up and over the wall and out, um, and so that your love and connection can pour in, limits are, are really necessary. And it is our job to, to keep our children's moments of poor judgment, um, moments of inner upset from damaging their relationships with other children, damaging their relationships with other adults, damaging their health. You know, just to to keep them from running amok, keep them protected from, you know, the human mind gone awry uh, because of big feelings. Mm. And it's so rewarding. I mean, it's so rewarding. Um, I'll just tell you one fairly extreme story, but it's an example of how deep these tools can go. Um, the woman who was the co-director of the little school that we you know, start that we started out with and learned all these things in. Um, she had an ex-husband who had married a second wife and had two sons with that wife. And um, those boys had been both um, sort of physically attacked in a disciplinary way often and they had been seriously, seriously neglected, kind of alternately, you know, uh, attack from grown-ups because of their behavior and and sort of really serious neglect. And she knew those boys and had a relationship with them and saw that they were in real trouble. She had raised her daughter on, you know, with with this. Um, with this approach, it was the approach that we kind of came up with as we worked together, and her daughter understood this approach very deeply and was about I think nineteen when she also saw that her half-brothers were really behaviorally way way out there and so they made the arrangement with you know, the her ex-husband had divorced this This woman had divorced her ex-husband, so, but it was her daughter's half-brothers, and they invited the half-brothers to come spend the summer with them out here, Um, and the mom said yes. She was really exhausted from parenting two deeply, deeply angry boys, and I saw the boys when they got here. They were... I think they were eleven and nine, or yeah, eleven and nine is about how old they were. And if you did one little thing that they, one of them didn't like, he would spit out, you know, a whole, a whole minutes worth of curse words, some of which you have never heard before. I mean, just like bitter, harsh eyes looking daggers at you, you know, complete and utter rejection of the kindness of anybody coming in at them for any reason. And you, you know, and all it took was this tiny little thing and they were both like, you know, like time bombs, but going off every half hour one way or another verbally and ready to, ready to fight physically. And I just thought, Oh, my Lord, these boys are going to be in juvenile hall before they're 13. You know, nobody's going to be able to stand this kind of behavior. They were extreme. And my friend and her daughter went to work using listening tools with them, using special time, getting play going with lots of laughter lots of physical play, which is really good for helping children undo deep fears. and lots of setting limits and stay listening. And generally, what would happen was that the oldest boy was, you know, the, the hot, had the hottest head. And um, he'd wake up in the morning, you know, my friend would say, Well, good morning, good to see you. And he would spit invective at her for, you know, 30 seconds. Oh, you fucker, you. Uh, just, I mean, I'm not going to, sorry. I didn't mean to that. <laughs> okay. much. But it was that word and worse, way worse. And um, and she would say, I can't let you talk that way. And she'd put his, her arms around him and embrace him. And he would start fighting her and crying and thrashing and you know, kicking and trying to hurt her. And she would just you know, parry the blows and stay with him. And there was very, very intense emotional moments going on many times a day both with my friend and with their half-sister, her daughter, who was 19, who really had grown up with this approach. And I didn't see them during the summer and it was a lot of work, a lot of work going on, really setting limits every time they would cross the line into, um, in, into aggressive verbal or aggressive physical behavior. And those boys came out, I mean, I saw them at the end of the summer, they were relaxed, they could smile, they could look you in the eye, Um, they could hold a conversation, I mean they their lives just absolutely turned 180 degrees. (coughs) And they've, they've kept it, you know, they are wonderful, wonderful young men, you know, one of them has had a few more struggles than the other, but just the transformation there was. I mean, most people have never seen that kind of transformation in a human being of any age. And mm-hmm. uh, that was, I think, I don't know, eight weeks, eight, 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 or, eight or 10 weeks of very consistent work. And of course the mom and, and, and the daughter needed emotional support. So they got listening time for how hard this was, how sad they felt that the boys had been hurt this way how awful it was to hear all the horrible things, the nasty things that they said about them because when children are fighting they they tend to aim their cannons right at the safest person, which is almost always the parent um, or the caregiver you know the, the person who's trying the hardest, you know you you know you don't care about me. all you want to do is control me uh, you know and uh, mm-hmm. they, they took a lot of uh, yeah. yeah. They, they, they such listen. a
0: hopeful story. Um. Such a hopeful story. And I love what you say about children being able to heal. Um. And and adults as well from you know. Um. From the difficult things that happen, and you know that's such a a story of hope for for parents. Um. When there's often so much guilt around parenting about the things that have been hard in 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 parents' lives and in children's lives and these unavoidable uh life events that happen to so many of us, all of us I think have, have difficult things happen. Yeah. Um and it, yeah, so it, it's it's so hopeful to hear about these feeling these stories of of healing and and the, the change that is possible using these tools. Um so yeah and and what something that comes up with the parents that I work with is um it's it's often not a feeling of hopefulness that they are carrying. That often they feel quite um, disempowered and quite hopeless because, um, you know, as as we all know, parents are so unsupported in the such important and emotional work of parenting, and um, you know, often parents come to me and their 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 life situations are so tricky and so difficult. And they can often feel like a real sense of hopelessness. That like what can I do? I can't use these wonderful connecting tools because um, I'm in survival mode. I'm in the I'm in the trenches here. I feel really stuck. Um, so, what do you have any uh, anything to share for
1: those parents that might give them some hope? Well, I think first of all, we we just I think we don't do enough at hand in hand of making it clear that we live in deeply oppressive societies and the oppression is very, very strong on the backs of parents. It's like, basically we live in societies that want people to function just fine, but put out values that if you need help, there is something wrong with you and you 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 better get out of that dependency as quickly as you can. Because, you know, you're not a full human being until you can operate well all by yourself. And humans are not built to operate all by themselves. We are built to be in close, closely connected groups. And we are built to require a sense of connection in order to do our best thinking. And we don't necessarily need to be connected, holding hands with people while we're doing our best thinking, but we need people to value us and give us lots of, you know, nonverbal messages that, you know, they, that we belong, that we get to like each other, that we get the rewards of really close nurturing relationships. And when you're trying to closely nurture your children, you need those close nurturing relationships for yourself. You need to be seen You need your efforts to be seen. And part of the hopelessness, I think, comes from pouring out so much heartfelt, deep, passionate effort to do well as a parent and feel that no one sees all of the effort that you have put out. And that sense of isolation, you know, and if you told somebody what goes on in your house what goes on in your family, they would, you know, they would judge you badly. Just the isolation of not being able to share where exactly the learning curve is, where the cutting edge is, and where we're trying to figure something out that is really not easy. That human beings never have an easy time figuring out how to love someone who is coming at you, you know, with, with words of hate you know, and children do this, you know, in order to heal, they need to say those words of hate and someone needs to hear them. And when we can't hear them or when we get devastated by, you know, the, the, what feel like our failures, we, we're just not conscious of the fact that those difficult moments are guaranteed in this society because we are so alone with parenting. And because the the job of parenting is so poorly understood, and because human beings' emotional lives are so badly misinterpreted, um, so that it looks like crying means that you have failed to hold yourself together, you have failed to you know to be an upright human being um, you have and And it's not a failure at all, it's the healing process that is happening to you because you've gone as far as you can think and you can't go one step further without letting go of the emotional tension that you are carrying. And when you have let go of that tension and someone has listened, you're going to be, your your day is going to be a whole lot better. You know, you're going to be able to be, if not gloriously pleased with yourself, satisfied that you have done your best and you can try it again differently next time. So the burdens of our of isolation and poor support for parents are on us in an invisible way because we all expect to have to be able to function under these conditions when human beings have never functioned well under in isolation from one another um, and in fear of being poorly of judged judged to be found wanting. And so, and I guess the second thing is you know if you're in an airplane. You know, the emergency procedure is you put the oxygen mask on yourself first, and then you tend to your child. Because if the grown up in the situation can't think, then nobody in the family is going to be able to think well. And so, what our ability to build a supportive community around ourselves is really key to enjoying parenting and reaping the rewards um, by having children who are able to relax enough to feel good about themselves. It's like while we're all tight and worried, our children can't get the messages of confidence that they need in order to operate at, you know, with their full ability to be creative and to think well and to share and to want to, you know, want to play flexibly with one another. So it's and and buying help is something that not a lot of parents have the capacity to do. You know, there are good good therapists out there, and it's an interesting thing to try. But, you know, most of us can't sustain that kind of expense on a regular basis. But parents can learn to give that help to one another. And we've taught many, many thousands of parents how to do this and created places where they could connect with other parents who just... Wanted a listener, and wanted to learn to be a listener because learning to be a listener helps you understand better what your children need, what your spouse needs, what your children's teacher needs, what you know, what the the old guy down the street who's always yelling at the kids what he needs in order to make the street a better, you know, a more positive place for everybody. Um, we just get what it is that people need at the core which is, you know, listening and connection in order to be their best.
0: And that's what I love so much about um about the hand in hand parenting approach is that this idea of listening to each other and supporting each other in this way is just such at the heart of of the approach. And and I can see from your story why that is you explained so clearly why how listening was was where it all started for you and the difference that just that alone, even without the other tools and the parent to child tools that just by being listened to, um, it, it can bring about a profound change for, for parents. And I know that in my own, in my own parenting, I was very, you know, when I first started using hand in hand parenting, when my daughter was four and my son was just a newborn and I was really, uh, I, I was really eager to jump into doing like to doing special time and to um listening to feelings and what I was coming up against was my own ability to do that because I was so I, I was so full of my own emotional tension and my own stresses and I didn't have anybody giving me that kind of attention so it was really when I I uh I, it took a lot of courage for me to actually give listening time a go especially you know in our this Irish culture that I'm from where feelings are we like to keep a lid on them so it was a huge deal for me to actually um actually give listening a go it was way out of my comfort zone but for me that's where things really changed in my parenting was whenever I started to get the support um and I started to get the listening and then I was able to pass that on to my kids then and that's when I was really able to start using the the other hand-in-hand tools with so much more ease um and and the thing is that you know whenever my kids were were young like that and I was really in the thick of parenting in the trenches and I felt that what I was doing was so different from what everybody was doing around me or what was normal in society by using by focusing on connection and by listening to feelings and by Attending to my own feelings and like that just felt so, um. You you know, I really doubted myself. Uh, Now my daughter, my now my daughter's eleven, and um, I really I'm starting to really see the benefits of like what this type of parenting, um. You just just the the benefits to her and the the difference that it's made to 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 my life and to her life, and you know, just last week, um, she was with a group of friends. They were playing outside and. Um, one of the kids d- you know did something that that my daughter didn't agree with and she was able to stand up and say no that's not okay and she kind of was able to you know you, d- you didn't ask their consent for that and she was able to really make a stand and I was so proud of her she came back and told me as well actually which was, I was really proud of too <laughs> so um, I was like wow it's you know it's it's the, it's when you start to get these little paybacks you're like yeah this is working. This is this is um, you know th- this th- this makes sense. So I was wondering maybe if you could share um, with us what you've seen maybe um, maybe in your own children or, and the many many children that you've worked with um, over the years. How has hand in hand impacted them? And I'm I'm sure some of them are probably parents now as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would love to hear the, the. it was just so helpful for me when I, when my kids were younger, to hear from um, older, you know, how older kids were doing with this approach. So I wonder if there's anything you can share there for us.
1: Oh, I, I all, all these, all these different things that I could say come to mind with all these different, you know, young people who are now young adults. Um, it, it's hard to choose. Um, one I'll say, <clears throat> there's one mom who was on public assistance when she first came to my classes. She was one of the, in, in a group that I started right at the very beginning of Hand-in-Hand Parenting, like very, very, in the first class that I taught really, after we founded the organization. And she stayed with the classes and actually became an instructor um, herself. She's a single mom white mom she had two children who were biracial their dad was um, african-american and unfortunately not in good enough shape to be with the family um and her children were i mean they lived on very very little money in this very tiny place and but um she did a lot of listening time and really had a, had and other moms around her also on public assistance um, really did listening back and forth in a really good way. And her son um, decided he wanted to be a professional soccer player and he was fairly gifted um, physically. And he, he set that as his aim, he wanted to be professional. And he wound up at the age of 19 being um, hired by a professional soccer team's sort of um, you know, group of potential players for the team in Germany. And he didn't know a word of German. Here he is, a, a black kid, no word of German, never been out of the country. I don't think he'd ever been out of the country. And um, he wound up reaching his goal of being in a professional, I guess they call it a farm team in the United States, professional soccer farm team in Germany, and spent, I think, three years there um, before he decided that he had other things he wanted to try. Um, So he reached his goal by the age of 19 as a poor African-American kid, which is amazing to me, and um, and a, a close friend of his, also a biracial African-American boy, was not so fortunate, grew up in this, they were, they were really good friends growing up, um, he was, his mom was sort of chronically depressed, she, they were just, I don't know, she'd had really huge trauma in her childhood, and so there was a little more of a hardship in their family that was both financial, because it was hard for her to hold anything more than a minimum wage job. And, um, but also just the atmosphere at home was not as, not quite as encouraging. But she really stuck with him. He wound up having a really bad reaction to marijuana. He wound up attacking a policeman. He wound up going to jail. Um, it was a physical reaction, kind of like an allergy to, you know, to that particular drug. And, and you know, African-American males are targeted, very intensely targeted in the United States by police, by school. It's just the, the oppression there is very, very strong. So he wound up, I think, spending like a year and a half or two years in jail for what happened there. Um, they later got his record expunged. Because, but there's sort of a long story there, but he he um, did get out of jail, and he now, at the age of thirty, has um, become the um, admissions director, co-admissions director, commissions co-director for a school for young people who learn in alternative ways who have learning learning difficulties. Um, it's, it is it uh, is a school of higher learning. It's college um, in this largely black community. Um, it's a position of power and prestige. He has bought his own home. Um, he's got a really good life. He now helps other kids who are struggling with learning in college. Before he did this, he was the just a counselor for homeless young people in San Francisco and was like really, really good at counseling other young people in trouble, mostly young people of color. And a third child, the sister of the, the boy who, you know, was a professional soccer player, um, she wound up doing, She she's a couple of years older, She wound up doing just from what she'd learned from Hand in Hand and her mom mom being involved in, in listening groups. She decided to do a listening group for the young adults that she knew, all young people of color, all dealing with racism on a daily basis and all having grown up with parents who listened to them and parents who let them have their big feelings. Um, she did a listening and leadership group for them for about two years where they could get together and work on all their feelings of hopelessness and helplessness in order to you know keep moving forward in their lives. So that's three young people, all young people of color, all you know, disadvantaged by racism in the u s in major ways, who just have shown, because they've been listened to, because they internalized how to listen, because they can tell the difference between who they are when they're all upset and who they really are. And they know what to do about all that upset in order to get back to their ability to think. So I think those are the three stories I'll tell. Oh, So beautiful. One of the things that I will also say is that when you see young people who've been raised this way with their children, their ability to play is so, it's powerful. It's all, it's with them easily. They know how to support other young children. They really don't have any problem with their children having big major feelings. They understand all of that pretty naturally. And um, so I don't know, just what we've seen has been Really, quite positive, and some of them are. I mean, with several of them actually become PhDs. The ones who have gone into academia have really um, have really shown have gotten like you know sort of system wide academic prizes for their PhD theses. Um, I have a grandson who has learned how to compose music for a symphony, um, and he at the age of 14 he was started composing for symphony um it just you know the the access to their own intelligence and their own gifts has been um really lovely to see that's so it's so wonderful to hear that and so
0: reassuring you know whenever we are in the thick of parenting and our children are having these big feelings and you know, that um, it can be so hard to to trust that process. So I'm sure so many parents will find that um, reassuring to hear. Um, and I, I I think that whenever it it's just it makes sense whenever children are treated with respect and when they're listened to that, they that's what they do in the world when they when they grow up and they go out into the world that 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 is that's their 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 nature. And it makes so much sense to them. They couldn't do it any other way. Right.
1: It, I think one of the one of the, the things that is great about young people who've grown up with this and adults who've grabbed onto it and built a good support system is you can't discourage a person who's got a good support system and who knows when they are upset, how to get out of that upset. And they will feel discouraged. They may feel discouraged for two weeks or three weeks or the whole time they're writing their PhD thesis or getting their law degree or, or, you know, learning these really intense skills that they want to learn. Um, But they don't stop because they know that it's a feeling of discouragement. It's not about the way the world really is and what the possibilities are out there. They just, um, they keep getting support. They keep, you know, peeling off the load of discouragement that comes up. And um, moving forward. And that's, I don't know, in order to change the world, that's what we need. We need people who can work on discouragement and have the support systems to do that. And as parents, that's what we need too. It's like raising children can be very discouraging. Your kid can come up with, you know, some situation that is very, very difficult to handle, you know an illness or a teacher that, that, you know, openly shames kids in the classroom and you can't get them out of that, out of that classroom somehow. Um, but together, you know, with support, um, these situations can be overcome and doing that adds to a child's power. So it's not bad when children run into big, big challenges and when grownups run into big challenges, if you have the support you are gonna learn really big, really special lessons in what's possible as a human being, and uh, yeah. Mm. And just
0: to reassure parents as well, Patty, I'm sure you'll agree that it doesn't have to be perfect either, right?
1: No, 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 no. It's never perfect. It's never, and and you actually have to actually be okay about that and laugh about it. It's like, oh my God, you know, we just got over doing this one thing and now look, you know. And you can get to the place where you can just have a half an hour of just rolling around in laughter about, oh, I can't believe what we're facing now. And look at the person who's been listening to you for the last two years, and you you can just roll with emotional release of of the lighter kind. And then every once in a while you dip into big, big sorrow and then back into laughter again, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a big thing I've learned is yeah, it definitely doesn't have to be perfect. <laughs> it's all very messy, <laughs> very
1: messy along the way. There are little perfect moments.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes, lots of them. Lots of Same them. when your
1: children are asleep. Well, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> So, Patty, I think on that, really uh, hopeful and and. Uh, yeah light-hearted note um I think that's uh that's a good place to end our talk today I could keep talking to you for so long
1: yeah.
0: um but it's been an absolute pleasure and I'm sure the parents who listen will take so much from this conversation and so much hopefulness and just so much inspiration about the all the work that you have done and the hours and hours of listening you've done um for for parents and and children as well and and the huge difference that that has made in the world so i know that was your you you mentioned at the beginning that was your you had such a drive um in your younger years to um make a difference in the world and i i can you absolutely have done that but big big time the the number of parents lives that you've touched and the ripple effect of that um i see that even in my own family and the ripples that come out from that from those Small interactions of just being committed to listening to each other, it makes a huge difference in the world. So, thank you for
1: all the work that you do, Patty, and thank you for talking to us today. Thanks very much for the work you're doing, Pamela. And I just want parents to remember that you know you are always doing your very best, you know, even when you are off the rails, and that that's the best you could do at that moment. And anybody else in your shoes would have gone off the rails at that time, too. It's just it's okay, it's okay you know you can collect yourself learn something you know come back at it fresh in the morning um, it's, it's really okay that it's not perfect yeah, thank
0: yeah. thanks paddy thank you so much
1: yeah mm-hmm. thank you so
0: much for listening to this episode i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did and if listening to paddy has inspired you if it has left you feeling curious about Um, How you might use these tools and how you might incorporate the power of listening into your own parenting. Then I am hosting a free masterclass on Tuesday, the 8th of November. It's all about understanding why your kids won't listen and what you can do about it. So it's packed full of really practical ways that you can integrate these tools and these ideas into your parenting to make things easier, to strengthen your relationship with your child. So if you'd like to join me, there's a link in the show notes you can click on that link and register. I would absolutely love to see you there. Thanks so much for listening and I look forward to seeing you next time. Would you like to get your kids listening so you don't have to shout and instead you can start enjoying being a parent? Then pop along to my website, pamtheparentcoach.com or follow the link in the show notes to get signed up to my next virtual masterclass. See you next time.